You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Will. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? It's your boy, Chili Willy, a.k.a. your friendly neighborhood goat whisperer. Today's music legend has a huge library of audible creations with a silky smooth baritone voice spreading over almost all of them. His name is now synonymous with country music, but he innovatively mixed country, rock, blues, and gospel influences into his songs, allowing them to hit the tip top of the charts. His almost mythical presence has had several names over the years. Pookie, Shoe Doo, JR, The Man in Black, but most commonly, Johnny Cash. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Johnny Cash, the name says it all. Even now, 15 years after his death, if a random group of people were asked to select one person they identified country music with, most of them would speak his name. He was a larger-than-life figure during his lifetime, and his legend continues to grow even after his death. If country music had a Mount Rushmore, his face would be chiseled in granite right next to Hank Williams, Jimmy Rogers, and the Carter family. But today, we're just talking about the good old Johnny, and I'm going to start right from the beginning. But first, let's just hop in the time machine. It's a brisk February morning here in Kingston, Arkansas. The year is 1932. Ray Cash and Carrie Clovery just had their fourth baby named JR, but he wasn't their last. They would go on to have seven children total. With that many kids right in the middle of the Great Depression, it left them nearly on the street. But just in the nick of time, President Roosevelt came along. He introduced several new and different deal programs, allowing the Cash family to move to Dias, Arkansas and live in a five-room farmhouse with several other people seeking work. As long as they helped take care of the farm, all 20 acres of it, they could stay there. It was a great deal. However, like most people in the country, the Cash clan were still barely getting by economically. Nevertheless, they were getting by. Everyone in the family was working in the fields and tending to the farm work. JR was five years old, working sometimes 12-hour days, working in the fields. Through those long hours, he not only used his hands to pick cotton, but he used his ears, listening to everything happening around him. Working alongside JR were his parents and siblings. Music was one of the ways the Cash family found escape from the hardship. Songs surrounded JR, his mother's folk and hymn ballads, or the yearning songs other workers sang out in the fields. JR's interest in melody peaked, and music became a growing passion that enveloped his life. At 12 years old, as deep as he was into music, he couldn't fully escape the darkness and hard work of his reality. One morning, he had awoken to the skies being particularly dark. He was confused. It was noon, but the sky was black. Thunder cracked in his ears, and it rained for several days, flooding the entire farm. 
It's been reported that the farm was flooded not just once, but twice. How high is the water, mama? Two feet high and rise. How high is the water, papa? She said it's two feet high and rising. But we can make it to the road in a homemade boat Cause that's the only thing we got left that'll float It's already over all of wheat Another day he awoke and the skies were clear But he had a dark feeling, a sense of foreboding He got ready for work with his brother Jack But his mother stopped them offering to take the day off and go fishing Jack and J.R. wanted to make their father proud and keep working while he was gone for the weekend, so they headed for the wood mill where they worked at the time. J.R. grew close to his brother while spending long hours in the mill. Jack would preach the words of God, giving everybody in the mill inspiration. That day was different. Jack got caught in a mechanical head saw. The saw mangled Jack's midsection, and he accelerated the problem by crawling across the dirty floor to reach help. Eventually, he found J.R., who carried him all the way home. Jack bled for a little over a week until dying. He was 15 years old. On his deathbed, Jack said he had visions of heaven and angels, and JR promised to meet him there. At the end of the journey, when our last song is sung, will you meet me in heaven someday? Can't be Everyone in the family was devastated and grieving, but JR's father had a different response, blaming JR for Jack's death and having drunken fits, saying JR should have been the one to die. JR felt an enormous amount of guilt already, but remembering all the things his brother once said to him, he became stronger. A year later, he spent most of his time by himself writing stories. One day, he noticed most of the stories he had written happened to rhyme, so he decided to try and sing them. He hadn't sang anything since the death of his brother. And right then and there, legend has it, he belted out a voice full of raw emotion, so powerful his mother heard it all the way outside as she was working in the field. She was absolutely amazed by her son's voice and scrounged up enough pennies to get him into singing lessons. However, after just three lessons, his teacher, enthralled with his already unique singing style, told him to stop taking lessons and to never deviate from his natural voice. So instead, JR's mother taught him how to play guitar. His father may have disowned him after his brother's death, but his mother wanted him to know more than just guitar or picking cotton before he became an adult, so she had him go to high school. Although he was way more infatuated with guitar, in 1950, JR graduated high school and left Dias to seek employment, venturing to Pontiac, Michigan, where he had a short stint at an auto body plant. That summer, he enlisted in the US Air Force, but the two-letter name his parents gave him stood in the way. The military regulations required a full first name, so he re-enlisted as John R. Cash instead of the humble J.R. Soon after, he was sent to training at Lachlan Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. The training, as you can imagine, was intense, but there was some downtime. On one of his off nights, him and some buddies went down to the roller skating rink, which was actually a pretty cool place to hang out back in 1950. But it was there that John met a pretty cool girl named Vivian Liberto. They started dating for three weeks, and everything was going great, until suddenly, John was deployed to Germany for a three-year tour. The couple stayed in touch as best they could, exchanging hundreds of love letters. There's a story in our town of the prettiest girl around. Golden hair and eyes of blue, how those eyes could flash at you. How those eyes could flash at you. Boys hung around her by the school. But she loved the boy next door who worked at the candy store. 
during the time John was in Germany. He worked as a radio interceptor and Morse code operator, eavesdropping on Soviet traffic. But that's not all. It was also in Germany that John began to turn more of his attention toward music. With a few of his Air Force buddies, he formed the Landsberg Barbarians, giving him a chance to play live shows, teach himself more of the guitar, and get more advanced in his songwriting. Quote, we were terrible, but the low and brow beer will make you feel like you're great. We'd take our instruments to these honky-tonks and play until they threw us out or a fight started." Unquote. When his tour in the Air Force was over, the first thing John did was tie the knot with his girlfriend Vivian. John and Vivian wanted to get out of San Antonio. John's older brother Roy lived in Memphis and told him they could stay with him for a while if they wanted. So that was it. The deal was sealed. They were on their way to call Memphis, Tennessee their new home. The newlywed couple were having thoughts about starting a family, so John started working to make some money as best he could selling appliances, but still pursuing music on the side. While living with his brother, he was introduced to a couple mechanics his brother worked with, and it just so happened they all liked gospel music. The three amigos, or better known as Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two. The two mechanics and Johnny formed a tight bond and began jamming together almost every day. Johnny who banged away on an old $5 guitar he'd purchased in Germany while in the Air Force, became the frontman for the group. And they honed their unique sound of blues, country, and Western music through live performances. Quote, he was a decent singer, but not a great one. But there was power and presence in his voice, one of the mechanics said years later. We're slipping away from home and putting jewelry in pocket to take the trip to go and listen. To the little dark-haired boy that played the Tennessee flat-top box and he would play. After a couple months, Johnny worked up enough confidence and courage with his new band to visit Sun Records' studio to get a recording contract. Before they left, Johnny stood at the edge of his small closet, ready to nervously ravage it in search for something clean and sharp to hit the studio in. He couldn't find anything except the one thing that kept catching his eye, his old lucky black suit. It was dirty smelly, but he wore it to all of his shows previously. It's been reported he wore that suit to the very first show he ever performed at. Johnny threw on the suit and walked out the door and into the studio. Soon after that, Johnny and the Tennessee Two obtained an audition with producer and owner of Sun Records, Sam Phillips. They realized this audition could make or break them. The pressure and pride quickly caught up to them, and their confidence quickly vanished. They decided not to play any originals and just stick to the script playing all gospel covers, exactly what they knew they were good at. The record producer sat there, uninspired. Didn't anybody tell you I don't record gospel music anymore? He said in an angry rasp. It was once rumored that Phillips told Cash to, quote, go home and sin, then come back with a song I can sell, unquote. This is news that Johnny and the Tennessee Two did not want to hear. But sin is exactly what Johnny did. He grabbed a bottle of Tennessee whiskey and chugged it down one after another after another. A couple months of this behavior went by, and he wasn't getting along with his wife anymore. But they decided to put their disagreements to the side and stay in it for their daughters. They already had two, and would soon have a couple more. This was about the same time Elvis Presley dropped his first record, inspiring a brand new wave of Elvis mania and rock and roll. And this was one of the many times John changed how he viewed music. He started experimenting with popular sounds. A burst of creative energy whirled around him, he started writing again, but this time it was different. His songs sounded more original and more emotionally raw. The producer Sam Phillips' voice popped in his head. Bring me something I can sell. The voice called. Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two 
did just that, beginning work on the cash-written Hey Porter and Cry Cry Cry. Johnny threw on that old Lucky Black jacket one more time and walked into Sun Records with his band, this time unannounced. All of them had this confidence that could shatter a hardened outlaw. Producer Sam Phillips just couldn't refuse them another chance, so they showed off their new sound. The producer sat there enjoying every second. Little did Johnny know, Sam Phillips helped Elvis Presley work on the very same record that he became re-inspired from, leading him and his band to get up and go to the studio that day. Not only was Sam Phillips impressed, he heard something he could sell. Johnny's old lucky black jacket just might have worked this time. Well, you wonder why I always dress in black Why you never see bright colors on my back And why does my appearance seem to have a somber tone Well, there's a reason for the things that I have on I wear the black... Phillips liked all of their new and improved songs, especially Cry, Cry, Cry and Hey Porter. He signed the newly branded band as soon as possible. Hey Porter was released in May 1955, and later that year, Cry 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 peaked at number 14 on the Billboard charts. On December 4th, 1956, Elvis Presley dropped in on Sam Phillips while he was cutting some new tracks with Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two. Jerry Lee Lewis was even there playing piano for them. The four music legends started an impromptu jam session. Phillips just left the tapes running, recording it all, almost half of which were gospel songs. They were since released under the title Million Dollar Quartet. In Cash the Autobiography, Johnny wrote that he was the farthest from the microphone and even sang in a higher pitch to blend with Elvis. This was a time of immense creativity for Johnny and the Tennessee too. They recorded several chart-topping singles and even a full-length album called Folsom Prison Blues. The album made top five on the country charts. One song on the album, I Walked a Line, became number one on the country charts and entered the pop charts at top 20. Home of the Blues followed, recorded in early July 1957. That same year, Johnny was on fire, or rather, jumped into a burning ring of fire, in both a good and a bad way. His music career was taking off, but his marriage, along with other parts of his life, were tumbling down a hill he couldn't even see. His wife Vivian had kicked him out of the house. She was done letting their daughters be exposed to his increasing alcohol habits. This led to him moving in with Waylon Jennings, who was also deeply addicted to amphetamines. Soon, Johnny was too. He used them to stay awake for his growing tours. His band members and friends would joke with him about his nervousness and erratic behavior, but the warning signs of his worsening drug addiction flew past everyone's head. They were too caught up being rock stars and outlaws, famous or infamous. Everyone still knew his name. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear the train a coming, it's rolling around a bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since. One night on Johnny's tour, he performed his first ever Grand Ole Opry show. Today, the Grand Ole Opry is still around doing all kinds of country acts. The latest act being the viral yodeling Walmart boy, possibly the Johnny Cash of today. times sure have changed. But back to the Johnny Cash of 1957. It was after his show backstage where he met the next love of his life. Valerie June Carter was born into the first family of country music. 
She'd been singing, performing, and entertaining for almost her entire life. Johnny noticed her out of the corner of his eyes backstage at the Grand Ole Opry and immediately walked up to her, saying, quote, I've always wanted to meet you. June Carter replied, I feel like I know you already, unquote. From that romantic moment, they became infatuated with each other. Johnny invited her to come on the rest of the tour with him, and they went together, making it more of a fun and inspiring experience for Johnny. He decided to move his current family with Vivian to California. At this point, he was Sun Records' most consistently selling and prolific artist. Now he was in the Golden State, the place where dreams come true. Johnny had always wanted to be an actor, and it was the perfect time to give it a try. His first role ever acting was in a Civil War TV drama called The Rebel. Then he starred in a movie called Five Minutes to Live, along with other TV dramas. He put his music career on hold to focus completely on acting. His new dream was becoming a movie star, and it can be done. Remember where Will Smith started? Everything was going great for Johnny. Like Will Smith, he too was getting jiggy with it, at least on the outside. On the inside, he was still spiraling down a constantly growing mountain of drug addiction. One day, he decided to go camping with his nephew and do some fishing in Los Padres National Forest in California. It was like time slowed down, which was bound to happen to Johnny in his drug-induced state. But the trip was actually great. The fish were plentiful, the weather was warm, at least during the day. At night, it got pretty cold. It was peaceful though. The only sounds breaking the quiet night were the singing of crickets and the chatter of Johnny's teeth. He was sitting in his camper, shivering, absolutely cold. He decided to start a fire in his camper. 20 minutes later, let's just say he wasn't in the right state of mind to take care of the fire. Johnny escaped the camper quickly as the fire poured across the national forest. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. When I hear that trumpet sound, I'm on a rise right out of the ground. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. The fire ended up destroying 508 acres, completely burning the foliage of three mountains and driving most of the endangered vultures out of the area. He tried keeping his outlaw image strong, saying, quote, I don't care about your damn buzzards, unquote but the U.S. government had something else up their sleeve. They tried suing him for $125,000. He ended up settling the case, paying $82,000. Johnny claims he was the only person ever sued by the government for starting a forest fire. According to his story, he didn't even start it. Johnny has always claimed the fire was caused by sparks from a defective exhaust system on his camper. When the judge asked him why he did it, Cash said, quote, I didn't do it, my truck did, and it's dead, so you can't question it. Unquote. And not only that, his nephew begs to differ as well, claiming he did try and start a fire inside of his camper. Johnny Cash's stardom was full of these crazy, reckless stories that no one could really get to the bottom of. All these stories allowed him to maintain a romantic outlaw image in the public eye, and he never actually even served a prison sentence, though he did go to jail seven times for misdemeanors. Once he went to jail for trespassing late at night to pick flowers on private property. You wouldn't believe it. One night I got in jail in Starkville, Mississippi for picking flowers. I was walking down the street. I may sing out for you a little bit later on. I was walking down the street. What? Excuse me, I couldn't hear you. I was talking. <laughs> I was walking down the street and uh, 
you know, going to get me some cigarettes or something. About 2 o'clock in the morning after the show, I think I was. Anyway, I reached down and picked a dandelion here and a daisy there as I went along, and this car pulls up. I said, get it the hell in here, boy. What are you doing? I said, I'm just picking flowers. Well, $36 for picking flowers in a night in jail. God damn. You can't hardly win, can you? Damn. <laughs> no telling what you'd do if you'd pull an apple or something. Another time he was arrested in El Paso for carrying 688 capsules of dexedrine, among other drugs. He never spent more than a day in jail each time he went. It was like he was immune from the law. Once after a serious drug binge, Cash was discovered in a near-death state by a policeman in a small village in Georgia. There's a lot of power that comes with being a music legend, and a lot of pressure, pressure that few can handle. At this point in time, his life was spinning out of control in complete opposite ends of the spectrum. He was beginning to fall in love with his increasingly close friend, June Carter. He had even performed a duet and co-wrote a song with her. The duet ended up winning him a Grammy, and the song they wrote together, well, that ended up being his biggest song yet. Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire so as you can probably tell, there was some electricity there. Unfortunately, his new lady friend was about the only good thing he had going for him at the time. On the inside, he was in an all-time low. His creativity was being put on hold by his countless addictions. The public may now envy his outlaw image, but Johnny's entire life was like a destructive tornado whipping around the world at 100 miles per hour. One night, everything changed. It was an average kind of night for Johnny. He was intoxicated and high on a multitude of drugs by 6 p.m. But this particular night, he was feeling more depressed than usual. His entire aura was blacker than the suit he became famous for wearing. He stepped out of his mansion to get some fresh air, but he just kept walking. A short walk later, he came upon a cave, Nickajack Cave. He led his weeping soul into the darkness of the cave. He descended deep into the darkness with only a lighter to shine his way. The tiny light of the lighter, combined with the ever-surrounding darkness of the cave, ignited more than his way. It ignited thoughts of all the terrible things he had done and said. He spent hours in the cave trying to lose himself and, quote, just die, unquote. So many thoughts were racing in his head. He wanted to get away from them. He wanted to get away from himself, but passed out on the floor. But what happens to Johnny after he passes out in the cave? Find out right after this short break. What's up, folks? As you might already know, I love podcasting. And I have a few of my own. And if you like podcasts, especially the one you're listening to right now, you might like some of my other podcasts. I don't just tell stories about music legends. Let's just say, if you want a bedtime story that will keep you checking your closet for monsters and ghosts, or if you want a campfire story when there's no campfire around, then my podcast, Spine Chillers, is perfect for you. I've always loved scary stories. And there's only a couple podcasts that I know that tell them. So I created my own. This is how it works. I find the most scary, most spine-chilling stories I can, and then I tell them for your elevated listening experience. 
It's currently on iTunes and SoundCloud, and we're working on getting it to all you Spotify listeners as well. So if you want some more scary stories in your life, check out Spine Chillers. But now, back to music legends. Johnny was laying unconscious in the cave. Utterly discouraged, he felt God's presence in his heart and struggled out of the cave. The entire experience represented a solid sign that God did exist and was reborn as a devoted Christian. Johnny stumbled back to his mansion and swore never to touch any kind of drugs again. He was reported saying years later, quote, I was taking the pills for a while and then the pills started taking me, unquote. About a year and a half or more since I've been around, but the past year or so has been a great healing time for me. And I thank God for you people and for all of the prayers that have gone up on my behalf. God has heard the prayers of all of you and mine. And I find that every day that I make my daily commitment to him and don't break that commitment, and the day works beautifully if I put my will and make his will be my will. June, her mother Mayabel, and her brother Ezra Carter all moved into Johnny's mansion for a month to help him get off the drugs. The very first thing Johnny did after recovering was propose to June. He did it on stage at a concert in Canada, and the couple got married a week later. I'll sweep out your chimney, yes, and I will bring you flowers, yes, and I will do for you most anything you want me to. If we live in a cottage, you will feel like it's a castle by the royal way you're treated. When Johnny got sober, the parts of his life that were spiraling out of control vanished, and everything that was going good in his life was becoming more visible to him. Johnny began performing concerts at prisons starting in the late 1950s. But now, in his time of transformation, he started going more than ever, realizing he could be an inspiration for the inmates. These performances led to a pair of highly successful live albums, Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison and Johnny Cash at San Quentin. Both live albums reached number one on the Billboard country charts, and Johnny Cash at San Quentin reached the top of the Billboard pop album charts. In 1969, they became an international hit when he passed even the Beatles by selling 6.5 million albums. His music career was on the comeback, and so was his acting career. He starred in his own television show, The Johnny Cash Show. Johnny became a fun TV personality, as well as had mainstream performers as guests, including Neil Young, Louis Armstrong, Ray Charles, Bob Dylan, and many more. This gave Johnny the opportunity to get to know other music legends better, and ended up making great friends with most of them. He even made a popular collaborative album with Bob Dylan called Nashville Skyline. It was no wonder Johnny kept a busy schedule. He wanted to keep his mind off the temptations of drugs, but health problems were nearby. After undergoing abdominal surgery in 1983, he checked himself into a clinic. Here he learned his abdominal surgery was a success, but he would have to go under the knife again, this time for double bypass heart surgery. And all of that definitely kept his mind off drugs. In 1992, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame which made it the perfect time to team up with legendary music producer Rick Rubin to release American Recordings. It was a 13-track acoustic album that mixed traditional ballads with modern compositions. I've been everywhere. 
American Recordings earned Johnny a new audience, and even a 1995 Grammy Award for Best Contemporary Folk Album. Although Johnny was now sober and didn't have to battle the one thing that kept bringing him down again and again, he was now battling something else, his health. He was diagnosed with a form of multiple system atrophy, which was originally misdiagnosed as Parkinson's. Johnny even announced to his audience that he had Parkinson's after almost collapsing on stage at a show. Soon afterwards, his diagnosis was changed, and Johnny was told he had approximately 18 months to live, but of course he would live much longer. However, his wife, June Carter, did not. She died on May 15, 2003. She was 73 years old. One of the last things June told Johnny was to keep working, so he continued to record. He completed more than 60 songs in the last four months of his life. He even performed a couple of live shows at the Carter family household. One of those private shows was actually his last public performance. Before singing Ring of Fire, a song that had grown so close to his heart over the years, Johnny read a statement about his wife that he had written shortly before taking the stage. He said, quote, The spirit of June Carter overshadows me tonight with the love I had for her and the love she had for me. We connect somewhere between here and heaven. She came down for a short visit, I guess from heaven, to visit me tonight to give me the courage and inspiration like she always has. She's never been one for me except courage and inspiration. I thank God for June Carter. I love her with all my heart." Unquote. On September 12, 2003, at approximately 2 o'clock a.m., Johnny Cash died of complications of diabetes at the age of 71. That was less than four months after his wife. It was widely believed that his health worsened due to a broken heart over June's death. The road to becoming a music legend is not easy, especially for Johnny Cash. He was beat down every single time life was looking up. At times, he even beat himself down. He was self-destructive, a force to be reckoned with, a mysterious outlaw of music. But on the inside, he was just a man, a son whose father accused him of causing his own brother's death. A man who walked into the first time, only to be told to get out and bring them something they can sell. But most importantly, he was a man that just wanted to do good. And that he did, which is what makes him a music legend. Thank you all so much for listening to Music Legends. If you haven't already, share it with some Johnny Cash-loving friends. And if you liked what you just heard, write me a good review on iTunes or wherever you listen. I know it seems like a simple little thing, but it really does mean the world to me. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by me, Chili Willie. I also want to give a quick but big shout-out to my friend and teacher, Chase Thompson, who helps a bunch as well. He's a complete badass when it comes to podcasting and pretty much anything else audio-related. Thanks for everything. It's only the beginning. And for everyone else, what music legend do you want me to do next? Hit me on the email at musiclegendspodcast at gmail.com or the snail mail or a paper scroll sealed by wax. Whichever way you prefer to transfer words. This has been Music Legends with Chilly.